How are we doing, church? Doing good? Hope so. If you got your Bible, grab it, and uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are in week four of this Before All Things teaching series, which is the kickoff to the two-year generosity and discipleship initiative that we're walking through. And if this is your first time, uh, again, we're in week four, so that's like starting The Walking Dead on season three. You're like, what's with all the zombies? All right, so you might need to go back on our app or on the website and catch up for the past three weeks. I'll catch up in like a sentence each week. The first week, what we talked about is that God is first. We talked about that He is before all things, the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. He is first. He loved us first. He went first by sending His best, and then we respond to Him by bringing our first and best, our first fruits, because He loved us first by giving us His best. And then week two, we talked about the parable of the talents. Do not waste your life. That God has given each of us whatever He has decided to give to us, and we need to invest it into God's growing kingdom instead of, by fear, digging a hole and going and, and burying it in that hole so that one day we would hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. And then last week, Pastor Britt was preaching, and he said that God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. He didn't make up that sentence. John Piper did, and I'm going to quote a lot of John Piper today, too. And the whole point was this. Look, it's all about Jesus. It's always all about Jesus, and that's what this generosity initiative is all about. And so this week, we're going to talk about life that is truly life. So uh, grab your notebook if you haven't already and go to page 33, and, and we're going to dig into to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Timothy. The apostle Paul wrote it. <clears throat> He's writing it to a guy named Timothy. They weren't real creative with the titles of the books back in the day, but uh, it's really just a letter. He writes two letters back to back to Timothy. And, and Paul is this older preacher, been in ministry for a while, and he's pouring into, he's investing into this young preacher named Timothy that's pastoring this growing church in this big city called Ephesus. I mean, it goes from like zero to thousands in just a few years. He's on the cover of At Outreach Magazine. It's one of the fastest growing churches in his country. Um, he's got all this stuff that he needs to learn. And so Paul is writing these letters of encouragement to Timothy to encourage him. Look, bro, as you pastor this church, here's some stuff that you need to be on the lookout for. And this is not like a seminary professor-student kind of relationship. It's kind of like a father-son relationship. They are very, very, very close. In fact, when you get to the second letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says things like this. He says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And I remember your tears and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Let me just tell you this. I was out of town last week, all right, hunting with Jesus in South Dakota. I'll probably tell you about more of that in the weeks to come. But as I returned on Thursday to be here for 722, I saw people like, you know, Pastor, Pastor Britt and Pastor Stone and Pastor Ben, and they all were like, hey, how was your trip? Pretty good. How about, you know, have a good time? Yeah, glad to be back. If they were to say to me, we remembered you night and day as we long to see your return, I'd be like, well, how's that next church you're going to work out going to work out? Okay, guys, this is weird. So they had a very, 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 like, tight relationship, okay? And so in this, Paul is writing to Timothy saying, all right, as a pastor, there's a bunch of stuff you've got to be ready for and on the lookout for. And so when he gets to, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, the, the beginning, the first five verses of chapter 6 are this. Hey, listen, you've got to be grounded in the doctrine. You've got to be grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there were some elders at the church of Ephesus that left the church because, this is crazy, they perverted the gospel for their own gain. Imagine that. Somebody that worked at church would, like, use the people for their own gain. It was happening back in the day, too. And then you pick it up in verse 6, and he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, do not pervert the gospel for your own gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, you don't follow Jesus because he makes your life better. You follow Jesus because Jesus is better in life. And look, we're obviously going to be talking about money for the whole time here. So before you get your defenses up, I know they're already up, but just put them down for just one second. Imagine, imagine if you had that in your life, that you were so content in Christ that really, not lazy, but I mean, truly content in Christ. You would learn the secret of being content in every situation. This world would have nothing for you, nothing on you. Many of the temptations of this world would just disappear for you because you were truly content in Christ. I need you to hear, this is what God wants for you, not from you. And so that's why he says, godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world, 
and we cannot take anything out of the world. My dad used to misquote this all the time. He'd be like, well, what the Bible says, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. I'm like, no, that's not what it says. I think Bill Cosby said that. Uh, the Bible says, it's, but you brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of this world. We all know this to be true cognitively, right? We all know it. That's why you've never seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul. Nobody. You'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, don't we live that way? I mean, we're so enamored with the temporary things of this world. We just are. And the reality is you cannot take it with you. You can, you can send some things forward. He'll talk about that at the end of this passage. But you can't take any of it with us. So it's amazing how we get so enamored with the stuff of this world. I mean, even the richest people in the whole world. You know when Steve Jobs died, you know how much he left? All of it. He left the same amount percentage-wise that you will. 100% that we leave it all behind. He goes on to say, verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. To which, you know, I take the Bible very, very seriously. So when I get to these kind of verses, I'm like, are you even being serious, Paul? Are you trying to say, if I got pants and a burrito, I should be good? I mean, that's it, right? I got, I got some clothes to put on and something to eat. Can you just, just real quick, can you imagine that kind of satisfaction, right? Can you imagine being so content in whatever situation, right? Like, like this today, coming to church that you had some clothes to wear, and you had something to eat. Even if it wasn't awesome, you had something to eat, and you thought, ah, I'm good with this. I'm telling you, life would be incredible. Here's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of Jesus' invitation when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me, all, who you, are, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your soul." For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Let's be honest. Weary and heavy burden, does that not sound like the American workforce? Does that not explain you and me, honestly? Look, this, this past week when I was, I was in South Dakota hunting, in four days of it was, was deer hunting in a tree stand. I swear, just Jesus sits there with me, and I read this verse 100,000 times. And I purposely, I don't even know what rest for your soul really means. It just sounds like the most inviting thing I've ever heard in my life. That we could just come to Jesus and have this is good. Imagine that. That's what he wants for us. And then he says, but, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, here's our problem. Um, a lot of us, when we read the Bible, we're not honest with ourselves. So let's just be honest. How many of you desire to be rich? I do. I'm being serious. I do. Because, I mean, anybody desire to be poor? I can help you with that. See me at the end of the service? We can make you broke. Every, and if you get more in two weeks, I, we can figure it out for you. You can open up that box and put it all in that box every single week, and we can keep you with zero in your bank account. No problem, all right? No problem at all. Most of us desire, don't you want some stuff? I want some stuff. I mean, I, I, there's, I don't know about you. I go into a sporting goods store, and I'm like, man, I didn't even know I needed that until I saw it, but I got to have it. This word desire to be rich, here's what it means. It doesn't just mean like you want to be successful and provide for your family and have some stuff. That's fine. This desire, that word desire, it means like a craving or a lust or an obsession. It means more. If somebody will ask you, okay, well, how much would be enough? You'd be like, I don't know, but a little bit more than I have now. That's what it means. And so it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Like what? Like the temptation to lie, to lie, to tell lies so that you can get ahead at work so you can get more money, to cheat, like to not be honest, honest on your taxes, why? So that I can keep some more from me, to steal, to take something that's not mine, or to steal, to steal some ideas at work so that I can get some more money, or maybe you'd be tempted to be prideful, to think that you're awesome because you're rich, to do other people wrong, or maybe the, maybe the biggest temptation when you, when you really desire to be rich is to absolutely forget God because you don't feel like you need him. You see, it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptations, into a snare. Here's the problem. Let me tell you the problem right now. <laughs> no, none of you think I'm talking to you right now. That's the problem. That, so you're, you're going, I wish my father-in-law was here, that rich son of a gun. He needs to be in here listening to this greedy. That's the thing. Let me tell you how you make a good snare. You make it so it's not obvious to the animal that you want to walk in the snare. So the moment, the moment during this sermon and for the rest of your life, you think, well, he's not talking to me, then guess what? You are a prime candidate to be snared. 
I hunt a lot. One of the keys to hunting is making sure what you're hunting doesn't know you're hunting them. Okay? They really shouldn't call it a sport when only half the teams know they're playing. But it's just true. (laughs) And I don't know that's a sport. I sit there for eight hours at a time. I don't know that's a sport, but whatever. I'm an athlete. Okay? So... It's a snare because it's a trick because it's a trap. You don't see it coming. Even right now, as I'm preaching this, I'm not thinking, I should go back and listen to this. This is good stuff. I'm thinking, y'all better be listening. That's how it goes. So listen, it is a trap. And when you put a snare, what you do is you also have to bait them in with something. You bait them in with some kind of lure, with some kind of bait. The best illustration I can think of is I used to have these two dogs, these boxers. They were awesome. Uh, I had a, a male named Samson and a female named Sadie. And we got Samson first as a little eight-week-old puppy, super cute and awesome, and he was like our child. And, and, and then, you know, we had kids, and then they stayed out in the yard. But before that, they were, we were really into him. And, and he was really obedient, you know. He was super obedient. We just let him, like, roam around the house when we, when we weren't there, and he always did great. And then we introduced Sadie, the female, and she ruined him. Okay, she ruined him. So um, it's just true. And... And when we moved to Jacksonville, we lived out at the beach for a while in those apartments right behind Angie's. And uh, we, we were probably going to Angie's, and we left the dogs out because that's what we were used to doing. And when we came back, the inside of our apartment, it looked like it had snowed because Sadie got up on the couch, and she started eating the couch cushions, and she got into the cushiony part, and she was like, "Woohoo!" And it was, we walk in, and it's winter wonderland. The whole place is just covered in little, little itty-bitty couch cushion things, Right? And so we opened the door, and Sadie was so dumb, she didn't realize that she was in trouble. She, was that dumb. she would see us, and she would just get so excited. She'd be like, ah, they're home. And she didn't have a tail, so she would just, she had a little nub, so she would just wiggle. And she would get, like, crooked. She'd be like, Yuck, there you go. Ha, <laughs> you're back. All right, that's what she would do. You could close the door and open it back. She'd be like, oh, my gosh, you're back. And that, that's how excited she was. Samson knew. As soon as we opened the door, he goes to the back, and he sits down, and he's like, this woman you gave me. That's kind of what he was like. All right, go to Bible. So based on that, we knew we couldn't leave them out anymore because they would eat our house up. So we got a crate. We went to like PetSmart or wherever, and we got a crate. And the people at PetSmart are, are liars, but they said that dogs love crates. They love it. It has to do with the way they were raised in the wild, or I don't know. And all you've got to do is read this book that they sold us, and, and you train them, and you say crate, and eventually they're just going to march into the crate with a face of gratitude. And they're liars. Because we would say crate, and the dogs would run. Samson would run and hide under the bed, and Sadie was like, where are we going? And she would go too. They hated the crate, but they loved cheese a lot. So we didn't say crate. We would go get one of those little single-wrapped cheeses and unwrap it and be like, hey, dogs, you want some cheese? And they would lose their minds. They were, and they were boxers, so they had that drool thing. Like, it would just immediately start, right? And we'd be like, hey, you want some cheese, you want some cheese, you want some cheese? And we'd throw it in the crate, and they would dive into the crate. And like, yeah, we got cheese, cheese, cheese. And they'd be like, dang it, we're in the crate. <laughs> Multiple times a day. And every time I'd do it, they'd be like, ha stupid dogs. <laughs> How dumb are my dogs? Get in my car, drive off to wherever I'm driving, see a big billboard, and be like, what? Zero percent financing, that seems like a great deal. And it's the enemy. With some cheese. Go, here's some cheese. I'm like, okay, 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 I'm telling you. But those who desire to be rich, which can be all of us, we fall into temptation, into a snare. It's a trick, it's a trap. Let me tell you a trick or a trap to, to finance something that continuously loses value. That's not a great idea. As time goes on, you owe more and more and more, and it's worth less and less and less and less. Cheese, okay? And it's just normal. That's what's crazy. You're like, yeah, but everybody else is going this way. Everybody in my class, everybody in my office, everybody in my neighborhood, we're all buying a bunch of stuff that we can't afford. See, we don't even know that we're stepping into it. And here's the problem. We step into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And you might be like, no, not me, not me. I, see, my problem, my problem isn't my decision-making, or my problem isn't even my heart and what I'm content in. My problem is just I don't have enough money. If I just had a little bit more money, then all my money problems would go away. Oh, yeah? Anybody remember MC Hammer? Did you know, the, I think it was the year I graduated high school in 91, he released an album. He made $33 million on that one album, okay? Today, he is bankrupt and flat broke. Doesn't it make you be like, what did you do? First of all, he bought a $30 million house. And he used to roll with a, with a 200-person entourage, 
because you had to have a lot of people iron those, like, can't touch this. Remember those pants, right? And so I could do the whole song I want. But you would think if I had that much money, I would still have a lot of money. But it, he, he's not unique. How about Mike Tyson? Remember Mike Tyson? In 1985, he came out, 18 years old, started knocking people out with a crazy left hook. From 1985 to 2005, he made about $500 million. Okay? $500 million. Now he's broke. He's got nothing. During that same time, just to put it in perspective, from 1985 to 2005, I made about 280000 Now, I said that on Thursday night, and somebody in the front row went, ooh, not at one time. Over 20 years. That's $14,000 a year, okay? When you added them all up, I was a part-time youth pastor for most of that, all right? So, so they, and today, today, he made $500 million, and I made fourteen dollars a year for a while, and today I have exponentially more than he has. Because he, he, he got caught up in a, in a snare, in a trap. He plunged himself to ruin and destruction. You want to do something fun, make yourself feel better about you this afternoon, which is always a good idea? Uh, just, just Google uh, top 10 dumbest um, lottery winners. I'm telling you, the crazy things that these people would, will do for the love of money. He goes on to say this in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's another very, very misquoted verse. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, money isn't bad. Money isn't bad. It is this love of money that's bad. You see, we, were, we should love God and love people and use money to love God and love people. But when you begin to love money, what will begin to happen is you'll use people and you'll use God to love money. If your money is not serving you, you're doing it wrong. If you have to serve your money, then you're doing it wrong. You see, because we're supposed to love God and love people and use whatever money he gives us to do that. He goes on to say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You might want to underline that word craving. So here's the thing about a craving. A craving is irrational and insatiable. Irrational and cannot be satisfied. If you want to see a beautiful picture of it, just get around a pregnant girl, okay? My wife is the most orderly person I've ever met in my life. And when she got pregnant with both of our kids, she would have these crazy cravings, these irrational, insatiable cravings. She would come to me, like, late at night and be like, babe, I need you to run the store. And your answer is always, yes, dear, okay? It should be always that, but especially when they're with child, okay? Because it gets crazy. And so, I'd be like, yeah, what you need? Chocolate milk and chili. Okay, let's go. And I would go and get it. There you go, whatever you want, okay? Irrational. And, and in fact, my wife changed a lot when she was pregnant. Her, her sense of smell was crazy. Like we would, one time we pulled up at these people's house and she, she literally she was like, they have a pool. I'm like, woman, what is, are you crazy? What do you mean they have? We get up, sure enough, they have a pool. I thought, man, we're going to rent you out to the police department as the bloodhound for nine months, okay? That's awesome. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard, all right? But you get these cravings and that's what the love of money can be like. You have these cravings for some stuff and then it's that craving for this stuff and again, it's talking to Christians here that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Let me tell you how this happened. It's like this, that you've got a desire to be rich. You just really have a desire to have some stuff. Again, it's not the money that's bad. Money's not bad. It's what comes along with it. It's sort of like on the Weather Channel. I saw one time they were interviewing this guy that was going to stand out in a hurricane. They were like, hey, you realize the wind is blowing 100 miles an hour? And he's like, I'm not afraid that the wind is blowing 100 miles an hour. I wanted to step in and say, bro, it's not that the wind is blowing 100 miles an hour. It's what the wind is blowing at 100 miles an hour. If a stop sign comes loose, it ain't the wind that's your problem. It's the stop sign cutting off your head that's the problem. That's what it is with the love of money. It's not the money in and of itself. It's when it begins to consume you and you work for it instead of it working for you. So how does this craving lead you to wonder from the faith? Some of you know these people. Some of you know people, and they, they started making a bunch of money. They were, you know what? I'm going to buy a boat. And listen, I got nothing against boats. There's nothing wrong with a boat. Jesus did a lot of ministry on a boat. You take me on your boat, I will do ministry on your boat. You understand? We'll go fishing like Jesus did. All right? No problem. Here's where it can go wrong. You go, hey, you going to church this Sunday? No, 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 because it's sunny, and it's a beautiful day and calm seas, and so we're going out on the boat. And then you, your heart begins to go more to the boat than to church. And then you start hanging out with boat people instead of church people. And then it breaks down and it costs way more than you thought. So you've got to pick up an extra shift. And then before you know it, people are like, hey, anybody seen Ted lately? And you're like, I don't know. Last time I saw him, he was on a boat. Wander away. Or your boss comes to you and says, hey, i got this incredible opportunity for a new job. 
And the only incredible part is more money. That's the only credible part. It's not better for you. It's not better for your family. It's definitely not better for your walk with Jesus. And you start traveling to the point where you can't do disciple group anymore, and you only make it here every once in a while, and you were going to do that mission trip, but now you can't because, you know, that's when everything's due. And before you know it, for the sake of dollars, you begin wandering away from this path that God had you on. How many of you know some rich people and everything's broken except their bank account? All their relationships, they're more worried, they're more heavy laden, they're more tired, they're exhausted, and the only time that they even get any sort of relief, and, they, and this doesn't even bring them relief, it's when they check their bank account. You see, you think Paul knew what he was talking about? He says, through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, run away. There's a few times in the scripture where Paul warns us to flee Primarily, it's when he's talking about money and honeys. He says, run away. Don't flirt with it. Run away. Run, Forrest, run. In Ephesians 6, he says, when you come face to face with the enemy, with the devil himself, stand firm in your faith, and, and you will extinguish uh, the, the fiery schemes of the enemy, and he will run away from you. But when it comes to the desire to be rich, and when it comes to sexual immorality, you don't even mess around. You run in the other direction. Then, what Paul's going to do here in verses 12 through 18 he kind of starts preaching a little bit. He kind of starts talking about Jesus. And Paul, he has a tendency to do this. He'll get super excited and just kind of lose his mind on talking about Jesus, which is probably a really good thing. In verse 14, he says, So <clears throat> keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Woo, glory to Jesus. What, what was I talking about? That's kind of what he does. And then I think Timothy sort of goes, uh, you were talking about money. So he's like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Well, let me get back to that. Verse 17. All right, Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, the way the NIV says it is this, command those who are rich these things. So in other words, Paul, remember, he's training up Timothy, who is a, a young preacher, and he says, sometimes when you preach, Timothy, there's going to be rich people in your church and as you are talking to rich people, you've got to talk to them about these specific things because rich people have rich people problems. And so there's going to be rich people in your church. The problem is today is this, is that most of us in this room are rich, but we don't think we are. Here's what's really problematic for us, all right, is that most of us are rich, and we don't think we are, and we're not generous, but we think we're super generous. That's just true. And so Paul says, Timothy, hey, as you're talking to rich people, say these things. And so I've told you this before, that if you make $32,000 a year in your annual household income, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. That means you're rich. If you're in the top 1% tallest people, you're not like 6'8", somebody said, man, you're really tall. You'd be like, no, not that much. No, you, yeah, you are, okay? And every time I say that, I'm always waiting for one guy to jump up and be like, see, baby, I told you we rich, 32K, knocking it down. Woo, dick's wings on me, folks, you know? But congratulations, you're rich. It's just true. And, and here's what I mean, because you don't feel rich because you feel all this financial pressure and you're worried about money no matter how much you make. Here's what I mean. If I were to bring to you your compassion kid, you would have a hard time explaining to them how you, let's say you make $50,000 a year, how you feel financial pressure making $50,000. They would be like, all right, now tell me how that works. I mean, you make $50,000 a year. My family survives on $2 a day. About 2.6 billion people live on less than $2 a day. And they would have a hard time understanding how you're not rich. It would be similar to if you went to MC Hammer's house and be like, yo, hey, Hammer, come here. All right, what happened? And just like you would have a hard time understanding how MC Hammer blows $33 million, they would have a hard time understanding how we aren't just rich or feel rich making tens of thousands of dollars a year. So here's the thing. <clears throat> rich people have rich people problems, okay? Rich people have rich people problems. And I don't know if you know this. A lot of times rich men will marry rich women and make rich babies. I don't know if you know this. And they enjoy these rich people problems all together. And so just, just, I want you to, I don't know if you have these problems. You probably do. If you're rich, you have these kind of problems. Here's a rich people problem. Here's a rich people conversation. Maybe you'll have it. Rich guy riding around in his rich car, one of his cars. You know, he usually has more than one. He's riding around. And he looks over at his rich wife. He goes, hey, baby, where do you want to eat? And she says, I, I don't know, wherever you want to eat. And then he suggests a place and says, like, you know, I don't like that place. And then they fight about, well, you didn't really mean wherever, okay. And then they go, well, what, well, let's eat there. Let's go eat there. And they go, no, 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 we eat there all the time. Let's go somewhere different. 
It'd be like, all right, well, let's go over to that place. Well, you know what? This doesn't have enough stars on Yelp. Oh, well, I have an app for a bunch of places. You're going to go here, you're going to go there. And then they decide, you know what? Let's just not go eat anywhere. Let's just go home. Those are rich people problems. It's hard being rich, okay? Trying to figure out where you're going to eat of all your options. Uh, another rich people problem, if you've ever said this, if you ever looked at the menu and went, man, this menu is just too big. That's rich people. Very few people get to do that. You know what I'm saying? Very few people get to go in and say, I would like this from that picture cooked this way with that on the side. No, 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 no. You know, 2.8 billion people a year are just trying to figure out how to eat today. And rich people, I mean, it's hard being rich. You've got to figure out what you're going to eat, where you're going to eat. Uh, rich people have these kind of conversations. Hey, where do you want to go on vacation this year? If you've ever had that conversation, that's a rich people problem. Like, I don't know. Where do you want to go? We went to Disney last year, spent $9,000, stood in line for eight hours, rode two rides, and the kids were miserable. You want to do that again? Yeah, let's do that. That'd be awesome. See, if you're rich, you get vacation. You can actually stop working for, like, if you've got food in your pantry that'll be there when you get back from vacation, you're rich. There's a whole segment of the population, more than a third of the people that live on the earth today, they don't get to do that because if they stop working one day, then they'll starve. There's not enough food. Or another uh, rich people conversation is this. Hey, hey, baby, we need to use this gift card or it's going to expire this month. And rich people are like, oh, yeah, where is it to? I feel a bit inconvenienced about going to that place to eat some free food that somebody else paid for. That's a rich people problem, okay? Am I in your business yet? All right, it's crazy. Why stop now? Here's a rich people problem that you're going to have in the next few months. You're going to walk in, and the rich wife is just going to be like, ah, and you're like, what's wrong, babe? You're like, I just can't figure out what to get you for Christmas. You have everything, and I've got to figure out, I need to waste some money on you, because sure enough, you're going to waste some money on me to get me something I don't need, and I need to waste a little bit more on you because I'm better than you. That's a rich people problem. See, poor people don't even have to worry about that stuff, right? You see? So I think we're four for four or five for five on that. So I, when Paul is talking to the rich, he's talking to us. As for the rich in this present age, he's going to give you two don'ts and three do's. The two don'ts are a little rough. The three do's are a lot of fun, Okay. Number one, charge them not to be haughty. We don't use that word haughty. Haughty means to think you're awesome and you're not that awesome. Okay? That's what it means. That if you're rich, by the way, the Bible's never going to tell you not to be rich. In fact, later on, it's going to tell you how to be really good at being rich. Okay? That, that not to be haughty. Don't think you're awesome because everything you have is on loan from God. And I know some, somebody always comes up to me and be like, you know what? Um, I've worked really, really hard for my wealth. Oh, yeah, with whose brain? Do you remember picking it out? No, it was given to you by God. Do you remember when you picked your parents and what country you were going to be born in? And you remember that opportunity where you just happened to be at the right place at the right time? God was behind all of that. All increase comes from him. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So don't act like it's all from you. Amen. And yet, in one second, we can all be haughty. We can all act like we're awesome and we're not. Here's how I know. I can do it. I've got a very, very dear friend of mine that used to have a Porsche Turbo. And um, he would allow me to drive it sometimes. And he gets embarrassed when I talk about it, so I, I won't tell you his name, but his initials are Lars Peterson, okay? And so, um, and, and he would be like, hey, take the car anytime you want, anytime, just come, get the keys, drive it. And I rarely would because I'd be so nervous. It cost more than my first house, literally. And so I would, you know, when I was driving my old expedition, I'd be riding down JTB, like, what, bump me, I'll bump you, whatever, you know, what, it didn't bother me, park wherever. And then I'm in his car, Biggie Smalls is right, more money, more problems. You're just like, why are you, why are you so close? Oh, my gosh, you know, couldn't figure out where to park, all of that. But I was still, about twice a year, usually like Gretchen's birthday and our anniversary, something like that, I'd go pick up his Porsche, and he taught me it's Porsche, not just Porsche, okay? And then, and then by the time I pulled out that neighborhood, I acted like it was my car. I would drive around it, y'all, it would fly. Rumor has it, you can get up to 100 miles an hour on the Beach Boulevard Bridge. That could be true, all right? And I can talk about it now. And, and also, he sold it, all right? He sold it, you know, because I made fun of him a lot, and Jesus told him, and, and Jesus sounds a lot like his wife at his house. So he sold it, all right? <laughs> but I would drive that thing. It was crazy. And I'm telling you, every stoplight I'd pull up to, I'd be like, you want to race? You know, yeah, I would. Gretchen would get in it, and I'd be like, hey, change the radio station. She'd reach out, and I'd go, whoa, and she couldn't touch it. It's like, it's like going to the moon, isn't it? It's crazy. We literally, we'd made some reservations at a restaurant, and I pulled up, and they didn't have valet. And I started to leave. She's like, why are you leaving? I was like, I ain't eating there. I am getting out of the Porsche Turbo. I am handing the keys to somebody so that in two hours, I can come back with probably $1 and, and hand it to them, and they bring me back a Porsche Turbo, and I'm going to stand by it. That's what we're doing. I'm telling you. You know what that is? Haughty. 
Now, when you do that, God will humble you. Because I'm riding around all cool and then I uh, pull into our neighborhood. And, and uh, we used to live in the woods. And I got the guard gate with the guard person there. And I didn't have the sticker that made the arm go up, so I had to go through there. And I pulled up, and I could tell she's looking at the car and thinking it's awesome, which means I'm awesome. By the way, if you've got a cool car, nobody's looking at you. But anyway, so yeah, I'm in it. And then I, I'm looking to roll down the window. In the Porsche, they put it over here. I don't know why. Rich people roll down the window with the right hand, okay? And like this. So I had to crack the door open. Hey, what's up? No, I live here. She says, nice car. I was like, it's not mine. She said, you think? <laughs> I'm telling you. Don't be haughty. Because when you do, you look like me, like some idiot riding around in a borrowed car. It's not even yours. You've got to drop it off at the end of the night. So don't act like it's yours. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So number one, don't be haughty. Number two, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't put your hope in riches. This is the cul-de-sac of stupidity. I talk about that a lot. It gets quoted or what? a lot. It doesn't mean that stuff is stupid. Stuff can be awesome. No problem. It's when you put your hope in stuff. So when you find yourself one day, you wake up and you got a bunch of stuff and you, you feel dissatisfied and you say, dang it, this stuff did not satisfy me, didn't bring me contentment. What do I do? I know, I need more stuff. That's another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament, here we go again, round and around and around, just more stuff, newer stuff, take that stuff back get some other stuff, and you will just be on this inland, endless cycle of discontentment. Do not put your hope there. You see, do you remember the housing crisis of 08? Do you think Paul knew about it? Yes, because it's happening again. I don't know when. I wish I did. But, but it's going to happen again. The point is, when you put your hope in riches, when you think it's going to provide for you safety and security, it will always let you down. The only one that can provide your soul with eternal security and safety is our Lord Jesus Christ. And to put your hope anywhere else is foolish. So don't be haughty. Don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches. And then he's going to give us three things to do, three positives. Number one is this. He says, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So first and foremost, put your hope in Jesus. And then understand that God richly provides us with everything, here's the key word, to enjoy. So here's what he commands rich people. Listen, rich people, you should be enjoying it. You should be enjoying it. If you are not enjoying your riches, listen, you're not doing it right. Did you know that? That Christians should, should be the most full of life people in the whole world. You know Christians' steaks taste better than non-Christian steaks. Did you know that? And some of you are not a Christian, and you're like, no, I think you're wrong. No, 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 you're wrong. Here, because when you eat a steak, all you get is the steak. But when a Christian eats the steak, the way Jesus intended, medium rare, okay? And if you eat it any other way, you've got issues, okay? And if you use steak sauce, you probably need church discipline, but now I'm getting off, all right? So, and when you eat that thing, it should not just, not only do you appreciate the ribeye, but you appreciate the God that invented the ribeye. One day he goes, I had an idea. We're going to take this part of the cow and put it on a grill and bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It stirs in us worship. We are to enjoy it. If you are not enjoying the blessings that God has given you, then you're not doing it right. Let me tell you this. If you can't afford it, you can't enjoy it. You can't. If you can't afford it, you can't enjoy it. And if you worship it, you will never be able to enjoy it. Because if you worship it, it will let you down. And whatever you idolize, when it lets you down, you will demonize. And it will begin to own you. But God is a good dad. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, I want to read you this verse out of the King James Version of the Bible. Because it just sounds more awesome this way. And, and, and it's, uh, God is giving instruction on what to do after the tithe has been taken up in, in the temple. And what he says is, I want you to throw a feast or throw a party. And here's the command, after the tithe has been taken up. It says, God says, and thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen or sheep or for wine or for strong drink or for whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. Praise God. We ought to get really good at that. This means, in a very God-glorifying way, you ought to party like a rock star, that you ought to enjoy 
fellowship and one another. And if you're not enjoying the riches that God has given you, then you're not doing it right. He's a good dad. He loves to give good gifts for his kids. You see, I want you to get out your notes. Get out your notebook. Hopefully you already got it out. And go to the notes page. It's like on page 34. And I want you to write down, I want you to write down the five most valuable things in your life. And I don't mean like hugs in your children. I mean the most expensive things. The five most expensive things in your life, like your house, your cars, whatever it is. I want you to write them down. Now, listen, and I know what you're doing. I ain't writing my house down. I saw that video. They're going to make us give it away. No, we're not, okay? That's not what we're talking about. I just want to ask you this question. And it might take, like, after, you know, after my house and two cars, I got I to gotta take a little time to figure out what the next two things on my list would be. And I just want to ask you this question. Are you enjoying it? If you're not, then you're doing it wrong. Some of you, and again, if you can't afford it, you can't enjoy it. Some of you aren't enjoying your house because you can't afford it. You bought too much house. And you can't afford it. You got no margin. You can never go get a steak because you, you try to pay for this house. And you thought if you lived in 5,000 square feet with that extra half bath, then you would be fully and finally satisfied. The problem is you can't even put toilet paper in the bathroom because you're so broke because you're so house poor. And it's miserable. You feel like a slave to your house. So the question is, are you enjoying them? If not, why not? Why not? What's the problem? Some of you are idolizing your house. You treat it like a museum instead of a home. Maybe you need to open the doors, invite some people over, let it get a little bit messy. Host a disciple group. Invite your neighbors over. Cook a steak, all right? Or if you're not good at cooking, then rejoice in the Lord and get some takeout and bring it to your home and bring some people in there and enjoy the thing and have like a church service where you don't sing a song or preach a sermon, but your lives just declare how, God, how good God is to us. Enjoy, enjoy. So if you're not enjoying it, why not? And then, if you're not, then I'd ask this, so what's God calling you to do with it? Some of you are driving cars that you can't afford. You need to take it back and get something that you can't afford so that you won't be worried about making payments all the time. And by the way, I know your car was awesome, but now it's just your car, isn't it? When you first drove off the lot, you were like, whoa, I bet I look good in this. Let me find something shiny to drive by so I can see me because it's the only time you can see yourself in the car. And now your kids puke in it and there's french fries everywhere and it's just your car. And, and really, you're a slave to your car. How dumb is that? You sh we should be enjoying these things. C.S. Lewis says it this way. C.S. Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let me tell you what will happen. If you're a Christian and you're abiding in Christ, as you discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus, as you begin to grow in him, what you enjoy will begin to change. Getting a letter from your compassion kid will mean more to you than a night out at Chili's. It just will. And, bo and it's all enjoyable. But we are supposed to enjoy it. You know, we're like annual pass holders now with, at, at Disney. We're those people. And so, you know, we've been and going back and all that. And we went a few months ago. And we're, we're getting in line for the lamest ride ever, right? We're on, it's a small world. But my little girl, how's that even a ride? But anyway, uh, but Reagan's face as we're getting on this deal, I mean, it's like she saw Jesus. She is like, <gasps> And she's climbing into the little boat, and we're climbing in with it. And I, I am really easily entertained, especially, like, if my kids are entertained, then I am get excited, too. And so I am just kind of feeding off her excitement for this ride. And then and, and almost, like, simultaneously, I look up, and I see the person running the ride. Please give your arms and hands in the boat at all times. And it's small word. Enjoy your ride. There we go. And I thought, how quickly, man. Like, may we never lose that childlike faith of a little girl that says, you know what, man, God is blessing us like crazy, even financially, just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. May we never become like the, like the worker that's just like eh, hitting the button. May we always enjoy the ride. God wants you to enjoy it. That's the first thing. And then the second thing he says is this in verse 18, to do good and to be rich in good works. In other words, if you're rich, you need to serve. You need to serve. You need to take some time off and go on a mission trip because you can't. You need to take some time in your life to remind yourself it's not all about me. God did not bless me to be a cul-de-sac of his blessing, to be the conduit of his blessing. 
So you should take some of the time that you have, and you should serve. That's the second thing. So the, so the first one is enjoy it. The second one is to serve. And then the third one is this, to be generous and ready to share. To be generous and ready to share. Because, again, most of us are rich and don't think we are, and most of us are not generous, but we think we're really generous. Here, here's why. Look, it says be generous. Not occasionally give something so you think you're generous. Those are two different things. It's sort of like this. Husbands, you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, has your wife ever come to you maybe just once and said, honey, you don't help around the house enough? <laughs> just imagine if she doesn't, okay? And what do you immediately think about? You're like, woman, what are you talking about? Back in 2011, I made the bed and nobody asked me, all right? <laughs> what we do is we think about that one time that we were generous and we think that counts forever that makes us generous people. That's not what being generous is. You see, he says to enjoy it and be, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and other serve some other people, don't make it all about you, and then be generous and ready to share. Think about it in this context. Again, a lot of us feel like we're generous, but we're really not. It, you know, I have, I have two kids, JP and Reagan. If JP had a big pile of goldfish, all right, like 300 goldfish, and I said, JP, here's another 100 goldfish, all right? But listen, buddy, you'd be generous with your sister. If JP would have said, okay, yes, sir, I'll be generous, Dad, and he said, here, Reagan, take these two that I wasn't even going to plan on eating anyway. And then he ate 40 and then just put the other in his pile and said, no, no, I was really generous, Dad. I gave her two. Would you accept that as generosity if you're a parent? And the reality is that's the way I think most of the time we treat God and his money and what he's given us. Some of the pastors, we've been talking about it. We're like, "Uh uh-oh, just talking about our own journeys, saying, "I I, I think if God held me to a generosity accountability the way I hold my kids, I'd be in trouble. You see, and I'm just get away from percentages, but, but having some and saying, you know what, God, I'm going to bring to you a couple that I, w- I could do without, I wasn't even planning on really using anyway, is not generosity. JP is not generous with his goldfish until the part that he decides to give to, li- to his little sister begins to impact what he thought he was going to do with the hundred. That's when it begins to be generous. And here's, here's what God wants for you and not from you. When you begin to be generous and you let go of some of your money, what has to happen is that money begins to let go of you. And that's what he wants for you, not from you. What are you going to do? Give God 20 bucks? He doesn't need your $20. But what he wants is that the stuff of this world will begin to let go of you. So that doesn't mean leftovers. That means that we are going to give to the point that it's, it's more than just comfortable giving what's left over. That is not being generous. You see, in the very back of your book, I hope you've been praying over this for many, many weeks, is your commitment card. We're not filling this out this week, but we are next week. And I told you from the very beginning, the number one goal is 100% participation. And let me tell you, the marker that I want on every single person that calls 1122 home, it is not about the amount. Did you know, regardless of the amount that you write on here, if you were to write, I don't, whatever, you know, millions on here, I don't even know if that's generous. Only you and Jesus know. Because there are some people here, right now, in this service, and they have a couple extra million that they're not going to use, like a couple extra goldfish. And I know, you're thinking like, what? It's crazy. But what I want every single person to do is just to be generous. To go before the Lord and say, God, what does it look like financially to put you before all things? And then just do what he says. Not what I say. Don't listen to me. Listen to the Holy Spirit and that we would be generous and be ready to share. And next week, we're going to bring these cards and we're going to lay them down at the altar and say, all right, Lord, here I am. Here I am declaring that you go before all things. And I would also say this. You need to know this. That, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this next week, that the church is not one among many like, nonprofits that are good to give to. That, that the church is the epicenter of God's goodness here on the earth. To fuel and fund the gospel going throughout the nations for his glory. And so he says, listen, rich people, don't be haughty and think you're awesome because you're not that awesome. He says, don't put your hope in it because it will always let you down. It will always let you down. And enjoy. I mean, really... Imagine this. Imagine if you were really generous. Imagine if you had to have a meeting every month in your house. Baby, come here and sit down on the table. i got a question. What's that, honey? What are we going to do with all this money? Can you imagine that? Sitting down saying, we got this big pile of money, and we've decided that we are going to be generous with it every month or every year or whatever. And, and, man, what a great meeting to have. That's what God wants for you. Generosity will begin to reprioritize your entire life.
And as you let go of some of it, then it will begin to let go of its grip on you. So enjoy it and serve and be generous. Thus, verse 19, thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Doesn't that sound like a lot of rich people that are miserable? I'm, I'm telling you, some people that are full of worry and anxiety and greed, and they feel like they just can't hold on to enough. And Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. What God wants for you is an abundant life. And a part of the way of doing that is to enjoy it and to make it about other people and not always about you, and to be generous and ready to share. Here's the point. That God has blessed you and me to be a blessing. What greater blessing could there be to invest in God's expanding kingdom? Jim Elliott, a guy that, a missionary that gave his life on the mission field, said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, or who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'm going to close with this. There's this uh, preacher, I talk about him often, John Piper. And about 15 or 20 years ago, he was preparing to preach to about, I don't know, 20,000 college students at this one-day event that, that used to be held. And he said that he kind of anguished over getting ready for the sermon. And the reason is because that our world spends billions and billions and billions of dollars on people like us to convince us to buy things that we don't need to impress people that we don't know so that we can go in debt and can't afford it and all of those things. And he had 40 minutes to convince them not to do that, college students. And about that time at his church, he was a pastor um, uh, up in, in Minnesota, and about that time he had two missionaries in his church. They were both in their 80s, these two women in their 80s, and they were, they were delivering food to some orphan kids on the mission field, and their van, the brakes went out in their van, and they go over a cliff and into a ravine and straight into heaven. And the newspaper in their town, it comes out and it says, Tragedy. And it talks about, I just remember one of the ladies was named Ruby. And it says, Ruby and this other lady, you know, they died on the mission field. Tragedy. And he holds up the paper and he says, is this a tragedy? I mean, is this really a tragedy? These two women who have poured their lives out for the one that poured his life out for them and on their way to serve the least of these for the glory of God and for their joy, they go straight into heaven and meet Jesus. Is it really a tragedy or is that not a life well lived? And then he says, I'll show you a tragedy, and he goes over and he picks up a Reader's Digest. Now, if you're 20 years old, a Reader's Digest is like a blog that used to come like in a book to your mailbox and your grandparents read it, okay? So, and he says, let me, let me share with you a Reader's, I mean, a, a, a tragedy. And he begins to read the story of Bob and Penny. Bob and Penny are 53 years old, and they retired early because Bob and Penny had done so well at work that they had so much disposable income that they decided to retire early. And with their retirement, they bought a Winnebago, and they traveled up and down the eastern seaboard collecting seashells. And he said, that's a tragedy. And here's why it's a tragedy, because one day, one day, the two missionaries and Bob and Penny are all going to stand before the Lord. And the Lord is going to say, all right, what did you do with what I have given to you? I have blessed you to be a blessing. And what did you do with it? And the two missionary ladies are going to say to Jesus when he says, what do you have to show for this life that I've given you? And they're going to say, you know, we got this love for you. We got some peanut butter and jellies and a van that needs a brake job. That's all we got. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then there's Bob and Penny. Jesus says, hey, look, Bob and Penny, what are you going to do? I, I gave you increase. I gave you so much margin. And you probably had 20 or 30 or maybe even more years to just invest in the, in the love of God and the love of people to use, use this stuff that I had given you to love me and to love people. What do you have to show for it? And there they are. We have many seashells. That's a tragedy. And so because of that story, he writes this book called Don't Waste Your Life, and in that book, he says this. He says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love, and I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs, and I'm using money just the way unbelievers do. And I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind, and I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace and I sink into a secular mindset that looks first at what man can do and not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. 
And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again towards a wartime mindset. And the wartime mindset that he is talking about, just in case you don't know, was the mindset of our country in World War I and II when we were willing to go without luxuries for the sake of winning the war. And what Piper is saying is that we are born behind enemy lines. And this place here is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what this this two-year generosity initiative and discipleship journey is all about, it's about getting our eyes up off of the muck and the mire and just running the same rat race that this whole world calls us to run, to get out of the cul-de-sac of stupidity, to get your foot out of the snare and get it up on the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and that we could all say, God, here I am. Use my whole life as a blank check, however you would. That a chunk of what he has given you, you would invest and I would invest in the expanding kingdom of God and then all of it, 100% of it would be enjoyed because he's a good dad who loves his kids and he loves to give good gifts to his kids. So let us never be the church. Let us never be the church that is the cul-de-sac of his blessing. He has blessed us like crazy to be a blessing. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you first loved us, because you are first, and you loved us by sending your best. And God, we respond. We respond by giving you our entire lives. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break some chains free in this place, even during this very time. That, God, there are some people in this room that feel trapped because they're trapped. God, they're, they're a slave to the lender. And, Lord, I pray, I pray. Even if they're wondering, how in the world do I get out of here, Lord, they, they would know that it's only through you, through Jesus Christ, that you're the only one that brings hope in a hopeless world. And so, Lord, I pray for freedom. I pray for enjoyment. I pray that we would not be haughty, God. We would be humble. We would put our hope not in stuff that will that will always let us down, but we would put our hope in you who would never, ever let us down. God, we love you, Jesus, not because you make our lives better, but because you are better than life. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, we respond around here. That's what we do. God speaks, we respond. We don't go first, he goes first. We respond by praying. There's a lot of us who need to come to the altar and say, God, I need help. I need help. I desire to be rich, and I need your help. And this stuff that I tried to grab onto has a grip on me, God, and I need your help. And we respond by bringing our first and best, our tithes and offerings, if you're a regular here, to the giving boxes, or you can do it on your app or the kiosk back here. And we are going to respond by joining our voices together and declaring, this is kind of the anthem or the soundtrack of this season of our church's life, and we're going to sing together that he is before all things. Let us respond.